0: Welcome back to the Guns for Hire podcast. I'm Alia Brahimi from the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. A few days ago, thousands of mutinous, battle-hardened mercenaries from the Wagner Group took over two Russian cities and began to advance on Moscow. We will go to the end, proclaimed their defiant leader on the Telegram app. Not 36 hours into the rebellion, a deal was struck with the Wagner chief, Evgeny Prigozhin, agreeing to withdraw to Belarus in exchange for the criminal charges against him being dropped. Yet the unprecedented and tumultuous melee, however short-lived, represented the most serious threat to Putin's rule in 23 years in power. In this emergency episode, we'll be joined by the renowned Russia expert, Mark Galliotti, and we'll be asking… What just happened? There's an ancient Chinese proverb that goes, he who rides the tiger is afraid to dismount. As we've explored in the last few episodes, Putin became dependent on tens of thousands of Wagner Group mercenaries to prosecute his ill-judged war in Ukraine. He believed he could ride the tiger, but it seems the dismount will be as dangerous and chaotic as continuing to hold on. The Wagner Group will probably become a case study in the dangers of private military force. Mercenaries were outlawed around the 17th century precisely because of the division they sowed and the destruction they wrought. Ransacking and looting, massacring innocents, and, yep, turning on the popes and princes who hired them. Putin is learning the hard way that mercenaries eat away at sovereign authority from the inside. His original sin was, of course, to launch his unwinnable war in Ukraine, which forced him to turn to Prigozhin's contractors for manpower. But by design, private armies can't submit fully to state structures. In Russia's case, the effort to bring them to heel seemed to threaten to bring down the state. Here today to discuss the striking developments of the weekend is Professor Mark Galliotti. In his own words, he specializes in murky and morally dubious subjects, modern Russian history and security affairs, and transnational and organized crime. Professor Galliotti is currently an honorary professor at University College London's School of Slavonic and East European Studies and a senior associate fellow at RUSI. He was previously clinical professor in global affairs at NYU, head of the History Department at Keele University, head of the Centre for European Security at the Institute for International Relations in Prague, and an advisor on Russia to the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Professor Galliotti is the author of over 20 books on Russia, most recently, Putin's Wars, A Short History of Russia, and We Need to Talk About Putin. Alongside all of this, for many years, Professor Galliotti was also my mother's next-door neighbour. Professor Galliotti, welcome to the Guns for Hire podcast. And what must be a whirlwind time for you?
1: It is indeed. Just when you think that, oh, you might have a weekend off, something else kicks off. Russia in this respect is the misery that keeps giving.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you first became interested in Russia, the misery that keeps giving 20 plus books later?
1: Yeah, look, I, in some ways, I have no good reason in the sense of it's not like I have any kind of strong family connection or the like. Though my English grandfather did serve in the expeditionary force that actually deployed into southern Russia during the Russian Civil War after World War I. But apart from that, it's more than, look, I am in many ways a historian of the old school. I'm into the stories. And for me, just Russia has always had the best stories, admittedly often the most miserable ones. But the point is that because the dark is that much darker and the blood is that much more bloody, it means that the heroism also shines out all the more. So, I mean, really, as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by this place. When I was 15, my mother took me to what was then still the Soviet Union and we did the standard Moscow and Leningrad in in a week thing.
0: And, well, I've never looked back. And consequently, you're as well-placed as anyone to answer this question. Mark, what just happened?
1: (laughs) Look, I think this was, in some ways, I think a reflection of the fact we don't necessarily always know how best to look at and think about Russia. If this had been a medieval story, we would have been entirely unsurprised if one feudal lord brought together his levies in a sort of demonstrative march to try and persuade the monarch to change policies. It's because we are in a notionally modern bureaucratic world that we get so surprised. But that is, I think, essentially what it was. Prigozhin was seeing his own power base shrink. He had been outmaneuvered by Defence Minister Shoigu. And the idea was that by the end of this month, all of his fighters would remain within Wagner, but nonetheless would have to sign contracts with the Ministry of Defence, which would very much limit his freedom of manoeuvre. It would mean that he was beholden to his main rival, Defence Minister Shoigu, a man who he has described as an incompetent and corrupt and a traitor and everything else. And I think, therefore, he just felt this was his last opportunity to try and persuade the monarch to change policy. And look, I don't think for a moment this was about toppling Putin or taking Moscow or anything similar. I think this was an expression of will and capacity that he thought would precisely persuade Putin that, in fact, he should side with Prigozhin instead of Shoigu. And it then all spanned totally out of hand in different ways. But I think that was the idea. It was coercive negotiation more than anything else.
0: So it was a messaging campaign.
1: Yes. I mean, this is it. It's hard to think of pushing 4,000 troops to within 200 kilometers and shooting down some various planes in the process as just messaging. This is Prigozhin's world. This is the messaging. At least he didn't do it with a sledgehammer for once. Mm
0: -hmm. And wasn't it extraordinary from a narrative perspective that when Putin emerged on television, He actually didn't play it down on television or sort of put it in its proper context, as you're intimating, and then say that all is well and we're going to squelch these little squirts or whatever. But rather, he used this very dramatic language and invoked the specter of the Bolshevik revolution. What do you think was happening there? Was that another instance of ill judgment by Putin? I think so. He did not look poised. I don't get the sense that this was a kind of a carefully
1: calibrated statement that 15 different people had commented on and so forth. And we also know that one of Putin's real hot button issues is what he regards as personal betrayal. Mm. Traitor, he he said often enough that, you know, enemies you fight with, but someday you may make a deal with. Traitors, you can do nothing but wipe them out because they will stick a knife in your back. Mm. So I think in that context, I think he was genuinely angry and genuinely scared. And I think, again, Putin likes his historical analogies. And in some ways, I'm not sure if his 1917 analogy was with the Bolshevik revolution or whether it was the Kornilov mutiny earlier in the year. Right. In which uh, a Tsarist general took his own forces, a sort of cavalry force, so-called wild division, and brought it in to precisely try and bring pressure to bear on the very weak provisional government. And the interesting thing is that actually forced the provisional government to arm the Bolshevik or the Soviet militia, the Red Guard, right. which in due of course, led and to the Powell, revolution. Um, but the point is, interestingly, is either parallel, whether we're talking about the Kornilov mutiny or whether we're talking about the Bolshevik rising, if you think about it, it was against a very weak government. Mm-hmm. Usually, Putin uses historical analogies to big himself up, to compare himself with figures like Peter the Great. Right Now we actually have Putin, and I think inadvertently there's a limit to how much we should read into this, but inadvertently actually paralleling himself to a very weak and fragile government, mm-hmm. which is in some ways though that's one of the reasons why he had to speak out so firmly because in some ways he didn't feel strong enough right to be able to treat this as just a little blip
0: That's fascinating so do you think, given the sweep of history, is this the beginning of the end for putin and is there blood in the water? And if so, what are the tells that a further challenge to Putin might be coming? What should we be watching for?
1: Yeah, in a way, one one can always say it's the beginning of the end, because in some ways, the second day after he became president was the beginning of the end. But no, but putting aside that kind of pedantic quibble, (laughs) no, I do think that it's likely that this is the start of the kind of the real end game. I have no idea of the timeline. But the point is, I do think, as you say, that the blood is now in the water. And most crucially of all, I think it was the spectacle of the security forces in the main not joining Wagner, as Prigozhin clearly had expected. He said, and obviously he's always prone to hyperbole, that he'd said he thought that half the army would join him. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there were 70 guys, maybe, all told. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, though, nor did they act to stop Wagner. They sat back and just thought, well, let's see how this plays out. And I think that is really quite striking because, look, The Putin regime really rests on three legs. Putin's own personal legitimacy, large amounts of money that you can throw at any particular problem, and the presumed unity and loyalty of the security forces. Now, we've known that Putin's legitimacy is declining. We know that the money is a problem with so much having to be earmarked for the war effort. Mm -hmm. Up to this point, we had no proper indication that his control over the security apparatus was waning. And now we've had a test and we've seen yeah. that is the case. So absolutely, I don't think that there's going to be another Prigozhin waiting in the wings. I'm not anticipating some military coup or the like as such. But what it does mean, if we think of this not so much as one individual squaring off against another, but as yeah. a systemic crisis. I think, you know, what's happened is it's been overcome, but at considerable cost. And that leaves the state even less ready for the next systemic crisis. And I think this is the point. It's about a decay of systemic capacity to deal with crises. And I don't know what the next crisis is going to be. Mm-hmm. Putin might get ill. Could be a collapse of the front lines in Ukraine. There could be economic trouble. But the point is, there will be something because there's always something coming. Yeah, And I think that's when, in a way, the problem will be. And then I think that there's more likelihood that, just like Tsar Nicholas II, Actually, Putin faces a situation where a collection of men in suits and uniforms file into his office and say, Vladimir Vladimirovich, we've got to talk.
0: You say only 70 men, and this whole fracas was maybe a bit of a parody of a coup attempt. But actually, if you think about just the political coup or leadership change in Egypt in 2011, for example, or other ones historically, Some of the time, it just takes for the military to do nothing and, as you describe, remain passive, and that is enough. They don't have to lead it. Even though we don't know from where the next challenge may emanate, does this make the possibility of certain units, the National Guard perhaps, standing back and letting something happen, does that feel more likely now?
1: It does. And in many ways, that is what happened. But A, we have to recognize that there were some units that were clearly still willing to be loyal. Kremlin Guard, the relatively elite forces around Moscow. We're now seeing pictures of, for example, paratrooper units backed up by Federal Security Service Special Forces mustering along the Oka River south of Moscow, which was clearly being identified as going to be the sort of the actual, the line that they would draw in the metaphorical sand. Right. So there were still units. But I think also one has to acknowledge the degree to which this is actually a system which is really quite well de- designed to be coup-proof. Mm-hmm. In terms of having multiple armed and intelligence services constantly watching and monitoring each other. And again, look, there will have to be autopsies about quite why this happened. And clearly, both the Federal Security Service, which is meant to be responsible for monitoring the loyalty of the military, mm-hmm. and the FSO, the Federal Protection Service, which is the, sort of the final backstop of Putin's protection. Neither of them seem to have picked up on this in mm-hmm. a timely yeah. or manner. But again, I think maybe it's because precisely Wagner was outside of all the usual arms-bearing structures. It wasn't mm-hmm. the military. There is a military department for counterintelligence. There is a department that monitors the National Guard and so forth. It may well be that just no one had gotten round to having a watching the mercenaries division or something as stupidly bureaucratic as that. We don't know. But under normal circumstances, there would normally be more checks and balances. And I think what this means is that if there is some kind of coup, political or otherwise,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it will actually have to be from a coalition. The generals alone could probably not pull it off. There would have to be some yeah. kind of collaboration between generals and National Guard generals and maybe people from the intelligence community. That's not impossible. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's, for example, that the political coup that brought down Nikita Khrushchev was precisely such a sort of cross elite thing. It, it is harder. And yet, in some ways, this war is creating the preconditions where what two years ago I would have said is almost impossible is now beginning to look more possible as just so many different institutions and interest groups are thinking, wow, this is not going well.
2: And
0: speaking of loyalties, can you talk us through the relationship between Prigozhin and the Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov, who has his own paramilitary units in Ukraine? And he and Prigozhin seemed to be fellow travellers in Ukraine, disruptors and critical of the Russian military brass and its performance. But when it came down to it, Kadyrov rallied around Putin and the Russian defence minister. Or did he? He
1: performatively did. You see, the interesting thing is this. If you think about it, ultimately, Prigozhin is a businessman who happened to run mercenaries as part of a much wider conglomerate. Kadyrov is ultimately a regional satrap. He has territory and he has an army. Mm-hmm. And that gives him, on the one level, a lot more security, but also, on the other hand, much less flexibility, shall we say. The two, in some ways, for a while, filled the same political niche. Mm-hmm. They were the thuggish outsiders. They were people who had their own private armies, which meant that they were always, to a degree, in contestation with the more kind of regular security forces. And also, they were social outsiders within the context of the Russian elite. No one invites Kadyrov to their parties. I know it sounds like a trivial point. He is—he is regarded as a moron. I mean, even you know, people make fun of the way he speaks Russian. Right. He is regarded as, at best, a sort of half-tame barbarian. Mm -hmm. At worst, actually, some someone who's just an out-and-out monster. Likewise, (laughs) Prigozhin. Boghossian didn't manage to build any kind of real network of friends or supporters within the upper elite. So they they both had this kind of common interest for a while in precisely, as you're saying, being disruptors. Mm -hmm. However, the point is, the goals that they were aiming at were different. From Kadyrov's point of view, he likes to make himself periodically inconvenient so that Moscow buys him off. Moscow is terrified of the prospect of a third Chechen war Mm -hmm. and has convinced himself, and I think wrongly, that Kadyrov is the only real person who can actually keep Chechnya in line. So when it comes down to it, every now and then, whenever it looks as if there's any chance of the massive federal subsidies, which basically keep Kadyrov's regime afloat,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: being at all limited, that's when Kadyrov causes trouble, tries to invade a neighbor, or muses that maybe it's time for him to retire. Right. At which point the Kremlin gets worried and reaffirms its support and the money keeps flowing. That's a very different goal from Prigozhin, who actually wanted Defense Minister Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov torn down and his own sort of interests protected. So what we found was inevitably, at some point, their interests diverged, at which point Kadirov could basically present himself as the alternative to Prigozhin, saying, well, maybe I'll set up my own mercenary forces, actually. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um,
1: so again, I think you know, this was two separate political entrepreneurs, conflict entrepreneurs, really who at times have common interests, but then when it came down to it, were ultimately going to diverge because both of them are essentially looking for their own particular interests and income streams.
0: And it sounds like Kadyrov actually holds a a major, if not a Trump card, but a major card in that he could create trouble for Putin on a second front during the war in Ukraine. So his position is quite strong.
1: Well, in most cases, one uses this as a metaphor, but in, in Kadyrov's case, he really can get away with murder Mm -hmm. and repeatedly has done so. Absolutely. I think at the moment, the only constraint I would say is that there is a limit to how much trouble he can actually cause at a time of war like this. Mm -hmm. It is conceivable that he could be sufficiently inconvenient that some days people think, well, actually, no, we have to take the chance to find ourselves a sort of a new tamer, Ramzan Kadyrov light, who we can put in that place because Kadyrov Mm -hmm. is just playing too hard. So when this war Kadyrov has to performatively express his loyalty. I mean, this is the interesting thing. He's forever saying, my boys deal with it. My boys could deal with whatever it is, Bakhmut or Bielgorod or whatever the crisis. And yet, like the kind of, and I know this from personal experience, the sort of recalcitrant schoolboy rugby player who wants to just look enthusiastic enough, but never to actually get anywhere near the ball so larger boys would then pile onto him. Kadyrov manages to ensure that his Chechens are never actually anywhere near the fighting. They're too busy videoing themselves for social media. I think in this respect, exactly. I mean, Kadyrov has to express loyalty, not be too much of a problem, but always with a flash of fang so that Moscow knows that actually if they push him too hard on the things that really matter, which is basically money and autonomy, then he could make things really problematic for them.
0: Does this mean that Kadyrov's forces are in no position to plug any gap with the Wagner group's removal from the battlefield in Ukraine?
1: Well, I mean, fortunately for the Russians, there isn't actually a sort of an actual gap in that Wagner had already been taken out of the line. True. It was yeah. pretty much exhausted after Bakhmut. I mean, really, it was down to much more than 10,000 men, frankly, for all Prigozhin's claim of 25,000. Yes. Yeah, I think it was being reconstituted precisely to be a kind of an emergency reserve that if the Ukrainians punch right. through one of the main defensive lines at any point, they could rush Wagner there as one of their relatively elite units. I see. It, In some ways, the impact depends on how much ground the Ukrainians are able to make. In theory, let's be honest, Chechens have demonstrated themselves to be no slouches when it come to, comes to fighting. Mm-hmm. I think that the, particularly the Akhmat unit is available for that purpose. Kadyrov will do everything he can to keep them safe, not least because in a way the Kadyrovtsi, his own sort of personal retinue retinue, they are the backstop of his rule at home in the vicious kind of authoritarianism he runs there. But again, I think it means that if push really comes to shove, then Kadyrov will not be able to stop his troops being used in that role.
0: But the great thing about mercenaries and the facility that they provide is that they insulate a leadership from the political costs of certain campaigns. Whereas Kadyrov has a a political base that Progrosian lacked and that actually sort of empowered him uh, temporarily. But in the longer term, if Kadyrov or the likes were to be providing cannon fodder for battles like Bakhmut, the cost-benefit analysis would probably change. Absolutely. and Because you'd have to answer for it politically.
1: Yeah, quite. This is it. If you think about it, Wagner can be drawn from wherever you can find people willing to serve, whether it's Mm -hmm. prison camps or just simply impoverished regions of Russia. Whereas, exactly, Kadyrov is relying on on Chechens. And in particular, actually, the command structure of the various Kadyrov forces is very much linked to his own clan. Mm. Because precisely, these are people he needs to have faith in. So, yes, I think this is why I think he has a very good pragmatic reason for even while he is talking the talk and saying how much he'd love for his boys to be deployed in whatever hotspot there is at the moment, In practice, he's walking as little, as slowly as he possibly can.
0: And can I ask, where were Alexei Navalny and his supporters in all of this at the weekend?
1: Well, it's interesting because at this very moment, I think it's more coincidental than anything else, Navalny from prison has just launched a new political campaign against Putin and against the war, very explicitly twinning the two. But we have to recognise that, look, the Navalny movement within Russia has basically been shattered that all of the sort of organizers and prime movers, they're either imprisoned in exile or just simply have been intimidated into silence. So this is still a movement which is to a large extent depending on communicating by social media and the like. I think that, interestingly, the Navalny figures were not like certain other emigre Russian politicians saying, well, actually, Prigozhin's a great chap or at the very least, he's doing a job that needs to be done and anything that undermines the Putin regime is a good thing. But I think on the whole, the, sort of, the Navalny people didn't actually have a kind of a clear line. couldn't remember, really, this was a scarcely more than a 24-hour yes. re- rebellion. And when your leader is currently in a labor camp, it also gets harder to have a kind of a standard line. So we, we had different people articulating different views. But generally speaking, I think that... The Navalny camp was more cautious about leaping on the for prigozhin bandwagon compared with some other Russian immigrants.
0: And you mentioned that the system is well designed to be coup-proof. But do you think that there's an argument that as dangerous and chaotic as things were on Saturday, the Russian system was working as it is designed to, just in a more exaggerated way? Because as Pavel Luzin, our guest of episode two of the podcast, explained, That kind of competition and enmity between the different services is encouraged by the system. And that's in order to keep Putin safe, right? Which it ultimately did.
1: Well, it ultimately did. But I argue by the skin of its teeth and also at considerable cost. The interesting thing is this. Yeah, absolutely. The whole Putin system is built around divide and rule. Mm -hmm. having in individuals and institutions with rival and overlapping interests, keeping them competing, all very cannibalistic, Mm -hmm. because that retains Putin's position as the final arbiter. He gets to resolve these disputes, and he's the only person who can resolve these disputes. Two points that are worth making. First of all, that has proven monstrously dysfunctional when transplanted to the battlefield. What works at keeping Putin in power for 23 years in Moscow does not work when you're trying to run a war. And this is the point even by elevating Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov to be the overall joint force commander in Ukraine, it has not done the job. Prigozhin's people did not necessarily obey military orders, or rather any military orders then would have to be approved by Prigozhin's command cell before they'd actually follow them. With mm-hmm. Kadyrov's Chechens it's even more complex, that again clearly everything has to go through Grozny. And more as actors petition and bizarrely, because the Chechens are technically part of the National Guard. Mm-hmm. So actually, the command chain would be from Gerasimov to the National Guard. Yeah. Big orders, they'd actually send, bounce off Moscow to, to get National Guard Commander Zolotov to sign off on them. And if it's for the Chechens, then it would have to go to Grozny for, right. for Kadyrov to sign off on them before anything would happen. And look, there are other mercenary forces. They're the elements of the regular army that are actually the... Donetsk and Lugansk, quote unquote, People's Republic forces that have been right. incorporated, which are the chain of command is also a bit more complex. Whereas the Ukrainians are demonstrating very effective unity of command. The Russians, for, yeah. for them, this was a real problem and an intractable one because it's rooted in the political system. You can't fix it while maintaining the, the overall political system. So that's the first point. And the second one is This system demands and requires Putin to be the figure at the heart, monitoring all these rivalries, stopping them when they begin to become dangerous to the system overall and resolving them as and when. Putin has been not doing his job for really quite some time. And it's not just the Prigozhin Shoigu spat. It also relates to a whole collection of domestic issues, rivalries between regions, Mm -hmm. disputes over the future of the Yandex Technological Corporation and such like. But, you know, obviously. When it involves men with guns, it's more obvious. We'd known for a long time that there was this dysfunctional rivalry. We didn't necessarily know it was going to lead to to Prigozhin marching on Moscow. But still, it was clear that it was burning out of control. And the point is, this is a system in, in which only Putin can ultimately resolve. If Prime Minister Mishustin had tried to step in, he wouldn't have had the authority and it would have looked as if he was usurping Putin's prerogatives. So he couldn't have done that. So I think this whole issue actually is in so many ways a product of the system itself. It requires the figure at the heart of it to be very active, proactive, and aware. And Putin increasingly is just not doing his job. There is a Putin-shaped hole at the heart of it.
0: Why? Is it incapacity? Is it misjudgment? Is it lack of access to credible information? I mean, I
1: suspect it's a bit of all of those And look, this is speculation, so treat it with caution. My view is this, look, for a long time, we've known that Putin does not make decisions easily. For all his macho persona, he actually is very risk-averse. And therefore, particularly when it's tough decisions, he tends to actually put them off as long as he possibly can, and therefore often actually makes the decision too late, and therefore Mm counterproductively. And I think particularly at the moment, the dilemmas have multiplied for him, really, since February of last year. The stakes have increased and he's in a situation where really he's choosing between worst options rather than an obvious good and bad. And that seems to be paralyzing him. He's around a lot. We see him greeting school children and doing all the sort of ceremonial stuff, but he's not actually handling the really important decisions because, as I say, they're scary. He doesn't want to get them wrong, so he doesn't take the chance of getting them right.
0: There's an element of being overwhelmed.
1: And particularly when it comes to something like Prigozhin Shoigu. Because after all, again, this is men with guns. He may well have a kind of, the pragmatic answer is, you go with the person who has 850,000 troops under their command, yeah. rather than the guy who's got ten to 20,000. But on the other hand, Wagner had been useful, and Prigozhin was a more scary guy. Both Prigozhin and Shoigu, in their own ways, they're very different operators. But neither of them is someone whom you can regard as negligible.
2: And given that
0: things have gone so spectacularly awry in Ukraine, both in terms of the disaster at Bakhmut and now the abortive coup, do you think it's likely that Prigozhin will cut his losses, if he has any agency at all, and retreat to Africa to defend the Wagner Group's growing ties and commercial interests there? Or do you think the prospects in Africa are too strong to hand over to Prigozhin now and that he'll have to give those up too?
1: That's an interesting question, which we haven't had any real hint of the answer to that yet. It's clear that Wagner in Russia and Ukraine, that's, that's over. The individual fighters are, being, are going to be rolled into other units and such. But there's not been any sense about wanting to likewise disassemble Wagner in Africa because it's, look, it's highly lucrative. But even more so, it it does garner for Russia a certain kind of, I wouldn't exactly call it soft power, but a certain kind of power projection. Yeah. Now, it may well be that I think the ideal for the Mos- for Moscow would be if Prigozhin were willing to continue to run it from Minsk with the same kinds of understandings. Now, I'm not entirely convinced that would work. Because in a way, part of it was precisely the close interaction of Prigozhin with the Russian state, what made it work. But on the other hand, from Prigozhin's point of view, what else is he going to do? It's all very well saying that all charges against you have been waived. But we know that Putin regards him as having personally betrayed him. Because after all, Prigozhin is a creature, a creation of Putin's. He's risen on Putin's coattails. So there, there must be that strong sense of personal betrayal. And frankly, people who have betrayed Putin, especially if late, have not really prospered. And frankly, if Litvinenko was not safe in London, then Prigozhin is certainly not going to be safe in Minsk. So it may be just simply that continuing to run Wagner abroad is not only a way of earning money, but it also continues to earn him a reason for the Russian state not to come after him. That's totally speculative though, but I do imagine that Moscow doesn't want to see Wagner disappear in Africa.
0: Just on uh, Prigozhin's future, history is replete with examples of mercenary leaders that end up amassing too much money and power and things ending very badly for them. As you intimate, Sean McFate described how the mercenary leader, Wallenstein, who commanded the armies of the Holy Roman Emperor during the Thirty Years' War, He became hugely powerful, and he woke up one day with a spear axe in his chest. Is Prigozhin a dead man walking, as you're sometimes hearing? Well, I suppose yes. Again,
1: if I was being really pedantic, aren't we all? But if I was being beyond that,
0: look, I
1: think in some ways Prigozhin has to outrun Putin. Right. In the sense of, yes, on one level, I think that Putin will absolutely not forgive and forget. And although. It may well be that they will give him more latitude if he continues to run Wagner in Africa, or it may well be that they want to, anyway, leave a certain grace period so that it doesn't yeah. look quite so obvious. Yeah. But conversely, as we've said, one could argue that actually Putin's own time in power is beginning to, to come to its twilight moment, so that maybe actually, from Prigozhin's point of view, and one of the reasons for making this deal in the first place is if you reckon this gives you a year, two years, five years, it's not impossible that you're willing to take that gamble. But in the course of that, Putin will fall and you don't have to worry about his malice.
0: Yeah. So is it a sense that if he survives the next few weeks, he'll probably survive the next few years?
1: The honest answer is, what do I know? I mean, I suspect, let let me put it this way, I would be surprised if they went after him within the year, assuming he's willing to play ball. Yeah. But at the same time, this is a man with, I think it's fair to say, relatively limited impulse control. Yes. Who also takes his feuds very seriously. Yeah. So it also remains to be seen whether Prigozhin's willing to play along.
0: That's right. The interesting thing is that the catalyst was that he wasn't willing to just give up what he'd built, even though he'd only been able to build it with Putin's patronage and permission.
1: And quite frankly, as I understand it, and certainly the sources I'm working on, in the course of the book on Prigozhin, that I have been working on before the coup or mutiny or whatever it has started, I should add, Prigozhin didn't want to set up Wagner in the first place.
2: Oh, interesting. I mean, actually, it
1: was the Kremlin that went to him and said, look, we want this done. Yeah. And we've decided that you're the guy. Oh, and by the way, you want all these huge government contracts to feed the army and so forth. Well." Are you going to play ball with us? Mm -hmm. So I think from that point, he seems to have actually identified himself a lot more with Wagner. And I think from his point of view, I think he'd identified it, that there was a genuine, I think, belief in the fact that his boys had been squandered. When one sees those videos of him standing in front of piles of bodies, basically screaming, where is my fucking ammunition? And so forth. I don't think that was just purely performative. I think he had actually got on board. But also, more generally, in some ways, I think he felt that if Shoigu won and, and basically devoured Wagner and subsumed it within the armed forces, then although, yes, there's the Concord Group, his wider business empire, there's Wagner in Africa and so forth, but that he himself would be a much diminished character. And Prigozhin has many enemies, largely mm. ones that he himself has made assiduously and enthusiastically ranging from governor biglov of st petersburg to actually increasingly the fsb and i think maybe he was also thinking that without wagner without that importance of being able to bring fighting force to bear in ukraine (laughs) he would be that much weaker and therefore more vulnerable to his many enemies
0: yes The premise of this podcast is essentially that by wielding violence independently of the state, mercenaries present a direct challenge to the Westphalian system and the current world order, and that by design, private armies can't submit fully to state structures, and Putin perhaps learned this the hard way. But how important is the mercenary, the specifically mercenary elements in all of this, the fact that the Wagner Group is a mercenary outfit rather than just another paramilitary force?
1: again, I think this was in some ways a particular problem for the Russians in that Wagner was precisely protean. It shifted from being one thing to another.
2: Right.
1: In, in Donbass originally, it was clearly just simply a deniable institution, part of the Russian state, particularly when it was being used, wiping out especially recalcitrant rebel commanders who didn't right. really want to recognize the Kremlin's writ. Likewise, in Syria at first... It was just basically a deniable element, but deniable not so much to the outside world as to the Russian population, Yeah, in that they realized that they weren't going to just be able to turn the war around with air power, they needed stiffening forces, and hence Wagner, because they also knew that the population was totally opposed to the idea of Russian fighting men dying in the sands of Syria. But then, once it was no longer needed, about around 2017, the Ministry of Defence says, no, we don't want that. The Kremlin says, oh, but Wagner might be useful in the future, so tells Prigozhin to keep it on. And at that point, it morphs into being a genuine mercenary force in Syria and then in Africa, doing deals in return for shares of natural resources and such. And I think this was a particular problem for the Russians. The whole Russian state tends to be a very hybrid one, where the boundaries between public and private are inordinately permeable. Mm -hmm. And indeed, one could also say the boundaries between legal and illegal, given that mercenaries are still actually illegal under Russian law. Yes, I mean in that context. I think Wagner was almost doubly corrosive. It had precisely the issues you say about mercenaries and the notion of organized armed violence at the behest of money rather than states with their demands for monopolies of forces of coercion.
0: Yeah, and their patriotic myths, yeah. Ah, but at the same time,
1: exactly, it was enough of a state institution Yes. That it could tap into not just the sort of the patriotic myths and such, but also actually the resources of the state. Mm-hmm. And it could basically play both sides. Yes. So I think, again, this is a sort of a, you no, know, definitely Putin should have read his Machiavelli. This is a real case in which actually the Russian state created something that looked appealing at first, yeah. was doubly problematic by the end.
0: Speaking of the end, what's next in this whole saga? Do you think Putin will revert to depending on the Wagner Group troops who remain to prosecute the war in Ukraine? Will they be completely withdrawn? And what does all of this drama mean for the war in Ukraine itself? I think the
1: impact on the war will be relatively limited unless we see a breakthrough of the lines within the next few weeks, which is possible, but not guaranteed. Anyway, that's the key point. Because I think Many Wagner fighters, whatever they say, will actually end up accepting contracts either within the regular military or within a series of mercenary organizations that the army itself has set up, groups like Patriot, Redut, Mm -hmm. or the new wave of mercenary companies that are being formed in Russia, Mm -hmm. largely by big state corporations. We know that Gazprom has set up three, that Roscosmos is supporting Uran and such. And in some ways, I think this new wave of mercenaries is interesting because they're designed to be much more controllable. They're smaller and they're directly linked to state corporations that are not about to go maverick in a way that Prigozhin could. Mm-hmm. So I think most of Argonafite, at seems, some will follow Prigozhin to exile. Others will just go home. But I would suspect most will end up subsumed within other armed-bearing forces. Again, after that kind of brief period of confusion, I imagine the impact will be fairly limited, on the war in Ukraine at least.
0: Zelensky's advisor said something interesting, which was that an alternative history has appeared in Russia. And it's this sense that there's a kind of a slip road that's appeared and that kind of reshuffles the cards. But do you think that's overstating it? Yes,
1: on one level, Russia particularly is prone to alternative histories because they will get, their histories get rewritten periodically.
0: No, I think that
1: this is not so much about a slip road. This is actually about just simply a deepening of the gradient. I think that this is both a symptom and an accelerator of the decay of the Putin state. And again, I think that's probably the most useful way of thinking about
0: it. It's systemic. Absolutely. Well, Mark, thank you so very much for agreeing to bring forward your appearance on Guns for Hire and for sharing your uniquely qualified assessments and insight. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, my pleasure too. And thanks to you for being with us. I hope, as listeners of the podcast, you were that little bit less surprised at the events of last weekend. I'll be back as soon as next week when we'll be releasing a bumper episode on mercenaries and the civil war in Sudan. There's a significant parallel here. Both the Wagner Group mutiny and the civil war in Sudan were catalyzed by the attempt to subsume and subdue paramilitary groups by folding them into the National Armed Forces. It seems that for these auxiliary groups with a mercenary hue, just to extend the metaphor, the tiger won't be caged. Goodbye.